History is replete with stories about the oppression of humans directed towards others of their kind, the heroic struggle to overcome oppression and to create a better world for everyone. The struggle for freedom in Africa has continued from generation to generation. Previous generations have battled against slave trade, apartheid, and colonial rule. But the struggle for freedom in Africa is far from over. Today's generation has the duty to make Africa a better and freer continent for the next generation. To do so, they have to battle against bad leadership but also against mass ignorance about traditional Africa and how modern societies work. The Freedom in Africa podcast is a discourse about the ideas of liberty and the tenets of a free society. Everyone deserves to live in a society where each individual is free to choose how to thrive as long as they do not harm or oppress other people. Such a free society is necessary for sustainable and holistic development. Join the Freedom in Africa podcast weekly for insightful conversations about freedom on the African continent and among black communities around the world. Together, let's learn to be free. Wanna be free? Welcome back to Freedom in Africa. Our conversation with Dr. Osman Dufelu continues. Uh, this time we're still talking Ghana, but of course we are uh, looking at the broader African picture uh, from the Ghanaian perspective, if you like. Uh, let's begin with the African Continental Free Trade Agreement recently signed, I think about a year ago or less. Ghana is the headquarters of the AFCFTA. How big a development is this for Ghana and for Africa? Um, this is good news, I would say, and it's, uh, I must uh, commend that. It's a big step in the right direction. Um, in, uh, I said um, the pre-colonial empires that thrived in Africa um, got their recognition not because of anything but through trade. And so anything that would ensure intercontinental trade to provide a big market that will ensure Africans can trade among Africans is the right direction to ensure economic power within the continent. Now, why do you think Ghana is best placed to spearhead this new agreement, even though uh, the conversation about AFCFTA is much bigger? But looking at Ghana in West Africa, we have Northern Africa, uh, East Africa, Southern Africa, countries like you know South Africa, Namibia. Does the geography matter when you want to place the headquarters of this idea? What would you say about the, the placement of Ghana as the, the headquarters of the Africa Continental Free Trade Project? I think um, what is essential for any economic venture is political stability and security. And I think um, Ghana has been able to demonstrate in the continent as a model of political stability where we can have transition from one government to the other. And we have tested almost every system where an election result was sent to a court, pronouncement was made, people considered defeat and all that. So for any business to thrive, you need uh, stability and security. And I think Ghana has that as a model in Africa. Uh, apart from that, I think um, uh, 
the AU uh, chairman, uh, Mahmat, uh, also mentioned that the Secretariat being held in Ghana uh, because Ghana is a historical trading center for gold, cocoa, timber, and other vulnerable goods that remains an important center of commerce on the continent and beyond. And that's apart, uh, it is, it's sad to say, but Ghana also has a historical record of the slave trade. It was a center for not only trade of commodity, but also humans. So uh, in terms of history, Ghana, I think, has uh, all these ticks that probably positions us in a better position to host the Secretariat. Ghana was recently ranked as the world's fastest growing economy by the International Monetary Fund. Uh, that's a great fit. Uh, when you look at Ghana from the 70s, uh, where we had the Ghana Moscow era, uh, when Ghanaian citizens were, were sent out of Nigeria because of harsh economic conditions, uh, how would you describe the journey of Ghana from those years into the fastest growing economy? Great economy, like you mentioned, stability, security, and it looks like you know a global destination for investment and uh, everything else in that respect. Or how would you describe the journey from 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 seventies to what we have now? I think I earlier on mentioned that uh, following Nkrumah's overthrow in the sixties, Ghana went through a turbulent situation of constant coup d'etat, and so in the seventies, as you mentioned, we had series of coup d'etat, and definitely. When people have their security in jeopardy, then the occasion is no longer favorable for them to stay or try. And that's where you saw a lot of Ghanaians leaving the shores of Ghana to finding greener pastures in neighboring countries in which then Nigeria was prosperous. And then I had a friend mention to me that his, his father was in German, uh, Germany around those times, but he had to leave Germany and come to Nigeria because the economy in Nigeria was better than Germany. And I was surprised, but um, apparently that was the reality. So yes, I mean, fast forward, um, following the 1979 coup and the transition, so from the 70s, 79, we went into 80, uh, 81, where Jerry Jane Rawlings took over, and then we were, he was able to put the country to that stability and economic security or reassurance, and the transition into the democratic system in 1992-93 constitutional rule, it then was an eye-opener to the globe that Ghana has now become a safe haven where people can be sure that they can invest and might not lose their investment to uh, power struggle. And uh, each and every year, Ghana continue to demonstrate that they have matured in their multi-party democratic system, especially when there was a transition from one power, one political party in 2000 from NDC to MPP, and then in 2004, MPP still won, uh, 2008, then in 2012, MPP lost and hand over to NDC. It was still showing how mature the country was, 2012, the opposition lost the election, sent the case to court. 
the court pronounced the, the ruling party as the victorious. The opposition conceded defeat and congratulated the, the president. So those were all indications that Ghana had matured in terms of democracy and stability. And so businesses were coming in in their numbers to be able to invest. And that's how we have come this far. Interesting to see that. So I'm guessing that even now, the growth is still very obvious. Can you point to perhaps other examples that show that in the last five years, there has been steady growth and it looks like it's going to get better. Are there any threats to this uh, uh, speedy growth that we have seen so far? People, are, especially now, I mean, the youth believe that they can be entrepreneurs. Um, people are beginning to be creative. And the interest perspective is that now people are beginning to look at the traditional stuff that we had that we probably relegated to the background and they are now trying to rebrand it and sell it, not only in the Ghanaian market, but to also export it to other continents. So I think in terms of uh, that, we are doing well. Um, for this year, I would say, uh, although in the beginning we have challenges in terms of uh, foreign exchange, exchange rate, I would say, but I think it's just been a bit stable this year. I don't know whether it's because of the COVID, but it's been stable. And that is also uh, very important in ensuring that businesses thrive. Again, I think our inflation hasn't been so bad. Um, the inflation has been stable, which is also good for businesses. Um, the only thing I think that is a challenge is the interest rate. Um, interest rate definitely is a bit high in Ghana. I think some banks lend at 25, 21, I think is the least. Um, so which is challenge for businesses because it means small scale and medium scale businesses will not be able to take loan to, to, to boost their businesses. Yeah. But just uh, towards the end of this year, um, I've seen some banks drop their rate to, I think, 18%, 19%, 20%, which is encouraging. And so if the trend continues, then I think um, good, uh, good the, news going the, the atmosphere will be good for business. Yeah, that's interesting. From all you have said and from your observation of other countries in Africa, will there be any particular policy suggestions that you think other African countries can replicate in their countries to see some difference. I mean, we, we know that if Ghana is leading in terms of economic growth, it means perhaps there is some help that other countries can use. First and foremost, I think we wouldn't have been able to achieve this without political stability mm. and security. So I think if there is something that all the other African countries have to learn is the political module of uh, political stability and security. Um, we might not be the best, but we are doing our, we are doing okay. Um, in terms of security, this year hasn't been great in the country, but hopefully we'll be able to work on that. But I think that is one key message I would say. And in terms of, um, the economic policies, obviously, we know things that will allow uh, businesses to thrive. Um, some harsh regulations have to be lowered, 
we should be able to encourage the youth to to to, to engage in businesses without huge uh, complex or cumbersome processes in registration. And I, I must admit, one last thing that um, is happening in Ghana is uh, digitalization of the economy. And I think it's something that if we are able to implement in the continent, it will help not only promote or foster business creation and development, but will probably contribute to the um, elimination, if not the reduction of corruption. I wanted to touch on that, but it seems that you have, you know, uh, you have mentioned it because our last conversation, we talked about corruption and crony capitalism, you know, eating deep and there seemed not to be uh, a way to deal with that. But you just mentioned digitization would be a good way to ensure there is, you know, you block up loopholes and there is a trusted system where monies don't go to private pockets. Let's push this forward and talk about Ghana and its uh, foreign policy. Uh, within your research framework and what you have done, uh, how would you describe Ghana's foreign policy? For instance, Nigeria for the longest years uh, have practiced the Africa first uh, foreign policy uh, to, to be able to secure, uh, protect our brother's interests, our brothers in Africa. That was one of the uh, key points in the speech of uh, one of our founding fathers who delivered that speech on the 1st of October 1960, talking about Al-Haji Tafawa Paliwa, talking about Nigeria's foreign policy would be Africa first. Let's take care of, we should be able to uh, to help countries around us uh, and across Africa first before thinking about, you know, whatever deals we are negotiating Let's put Africa first. Even though in recent times there has been a lot of criticism of that foreign policy, but let's let's get to Ghana. What would you say is Ghana's foreign policy within the ECOWAS framework? What what has been Ghana's place and globally in interactions with other countries? I think, just like you said, I think most of these policies within um, the various countries, I think, emanate from. The founding fathers, and I think um, Ghana still holds on to uh, Nkrumah's non-alliance policy. Even successive regimes after Nkrumah um, have still pursued these policies in various ways. So Ghana basically um, objective within is just to to be able to engage with any country that would be able to uh, ensure that. Uh, security, economic diplomacy, international cooperation um, is done to the benefit of both. And Ghana will not support the establishment of foreign base in other African countries or the other African sub-regions. So in as much as they practice the non-alliance, which means they, they, they relate with countries based on a common interest, but in terms of uh, economic, then the Equus sub-region, Ghana have that sort of uh, policy where economic policy where they have a common platform with Equus, and then even within the Equus sub-region, I think, uh, although Ghana has no definite uh, policy document, especially on defence, but I think Ghana has played a pivotal role in uh, a lot of conflict resolution and policy and diplomacy within the ECOWAS sub-region. And uh, 
uh, I think recently was in uh, Mali, where Ghana hosted the, the the people that went through the military junta to be able to establish a smooth transition from the military to a democratic uh, a civilian governance. Now, we have recently heard about xenophobic attacks on Nigerian businesses in South Africa and in Ghana. Just to add to that conversation about interactions and relations with other countries, uh, recently, in particular Ghana, we have seen uh, a huge, you know, uh, there, there, is a, there was a big policy that, that stated that foreign businesses had to pay a lot of money to be able to continue doing business in Ghana and that affected a lot of Nigerians. It took the intervention of uh, the powers here to negotiate and until the president of Ghana was able to assure us that indeed things uh, would go normally. What would you say uh, um, was the problem? Was it amongst Ni- Nigerians? Was it between Nigerians and Ghanaians or was it directly from the government? What was the policy about? What's your perspective on the entire situation? I would say um, it's more of within the the leaders. Um, I mean, if you're able to um, establish a policy agreement or rapport, then um, what will happen is that you have your national structures implementing those policies to the latter. I was privy to seeing what happened um, when the um, security personnel were to go about to carry out their duties, um, which is to close down shops that did not adhere to those regulations. And so as individuals, and this is applicable to both Ghanaians in Nigeria or any part of African continent and Nigerians vice versa, I think we should make sure we understand the countries we are going in, their uh, laws and regulations, and try and abide by them. If we have done everything to our best and the security agencies or forces are coming to implement their act, we should not resist, but allow them to do it. But we also have our association wherever we are we should go back to our association and when we come collectively to fight, then we have a stronger voice rather than fighting in isolation because the incidents I saw where people were their shop to be closed and the security people felt they have the constitutional backing to do their role was not good. for the, It was not a good image for the African continent. So I was happy when the, the association organized uh, the uh, president came and spoke to the people to stop going to the president and discuss with him. And they actually did that. And the president had a conversation with the president of Nigeria. And I believe they have been able to resolve that. But I hope, my belief is this new secretariat that has been established in Ghana will allow the African countries to be able to um, remove all these obstacles that is disallowing free trade within the continent so that we will be able to have free movements of goods and services, being able to establish businesses and thrive as a big market that will be able to stand against other continent. Um, does this in any way say anything about the state of economic freedom in Ghana? 
Um, if, if businesses that have been running before this time have to be closed down because there is a new policy that requires them to pay more than they have been paying, is that not a way for the state to extort or perhaps take too much from, from these businesses? We're talking economic freedom. I mean, there should be some freedom for people to trade and build businesses. Yes. So I think this African free trade um, stuff is, is, is an opportunity for us as African to be able to develop our own economic models. We, we have to have our own system that works for us. We cannot import all the economic models and it's all about taxation to sustain the economy. You need to high taxes and all that. And at the end of the day, you do not even allow those uh, small scale businesses to even develop. And so they only survive at the idea level. They cannot even materialize. And so I do hope this African uh, trade uh, thingy that will be in Ghana will be a platform for us to uh, develop our own economic situations and to deal with it. Um, the story is not different in uh, the story in Ghana. I think is not different from most of the other African countries, and it's not only for foreign businesses, but it's also I think for local businesses. Um, someone probably, I mean, I saw a post uh, where a youth was very bitter putting it on a platform that um, you want to establish um, maybe a Momo, an MTN money transaction business where the profit you get is probably 10 pesos on a transaction. And the um, the municipal directorate or the municipality will want you to pay 3,500 for you to have the business. It means the person cannot even start. Someone wants to produce 10 bottles of probably a drink yeah. to start as a business. And then he has to go and register and he With has to send it money. to Food and Drug Board, a Ghana Standard Board, and they will tell the person to bring 10, 11 bottles for testing. And maybe each of the bottles will be costing about 4,000. That would be way too much. So that's 44,000 just for testing before he even starts selling. No, that's, that's not and a good way. The, the to... person is to start selling. You get it. So that's why I said if we don't allow probably uh, tax-free. Uh, and now I think there are some government policies that are coming in place to try and allow uh, startups to be able to have tax exemptions and all that. If not, uh, the, people will just have ideas. And if you look at the African continent, that's why we have a lot of businesses that are not registered. Because in trying to do the right thing, they cannot even have the business. But you then have these giant organizations come in and they have tax exemptions. And our own small businesses do not have these cannot, privileges. Cannot even start. A good one. I, I totally get your, yes. get your point here. So, so let's just push it forward and talk about African freedom with Ghana in, in perspective. What is your general perception of the state of liberty in on the continent of Africa generally and in Ghana specifically? Uh, the Ghanaian Freedom Index, Human Freedom Index in Ghana is pretty high. Uh, Ghana is highly rated, much higher than 
other African countries, rated number 57 in the world. Uh, not the best it could be, but better than a lot of African countries. Yeah. What is your general perception of the state of liberty and, you know, freedom, first in Ghana and then in Africa generally? I think um, liberty is supposed to be universal. There's no one, I think, in this world who would want to be enslaved, who wouldn't want to be free. But liberty is synonymous to education. Yeah. And lack of education would result in slavery. Yes. So I think any system where you tend to have people well-educated, and when they are educated, they are informed. And when people are well-informed, then they are able to ask for what is right for them and or what they deserve. And um, so maybe I would say um, the level of education in Ghana is pretty better. It's getting better and better. And because of that, uh, in, in the olden days, we were probably in isolation, isolated. There is no reach. And once there's no reach, people are not exposed to other practices for them to appreciate differences. And now Ghana has become small. There's easy mobility, people moving and about. They are able to experience different scenarios, different personalities. And because of that experience, education, information, and the knowledge, then people are accepting people for who they are and people are allowing others to thrive for who they are. Mm. So probably that is what um, Ghana um, has achieved and I think is still uh, getting better and better and I'm sure it's going to be much better. So I think other African countries should um, module that, should be able to educate their populace very well and should also ensure mobility and um, integration mm. in within and without. Because in Africa, each country, there's diversity. So if within, you're able to integrate, you know that there are differences and you appreciate it. And outside the country, you also acknowledge differences. And so I think the idea of liberty will eventually uh, emerge victorious in the continent. Now, speaking of the different types of you know freedom that we have, we have spoken about um, economic freedom uh, from our conversation so far. It looks like Ghana, in terms of capitalism, is getting things right and it looks like it's going to get better going forward. Uh, you just talked yeah. about education as a component to achieving freedom on a large scale and education gets better with time. Uh, Ghana is getting that right as well. Speaking of personal freedom, media freedom, how would you describe those two components? As a Ghanaian, uh, it's a sensitive issue, but... Um we have working documents, but I don't think we have done well with practical implementation. Of the documents. Of, uh, exactly. We've got, I mean, the um, right of information bill has been passed, so it means you can go to any place and get whatever information you, you want. Um, uh, people can put up private radio stations and all that. But it has happened such that 
Even those private radio stations have been established based on political leanings. That's a popular concept. And you see that here too. Exactly. And so you see that journalists are not, they are no researchers or investigators, but rather, I don't know what to say, is it communicators or confirmers or people to, yes, yeah, some, not all else. They, they essentially execute other people's agenda. Exactly, exactly. So they are more or less political puppets, I will use, for lack of word. And um, we have seen that some, just in this recent year, some video station has been shut down. We don't necessarily know why, but um, you will know that um, there is some sort of connotation that they are associated to a different political party. That's why mm. they've been closed. Um I have witnessed an incident where a website managers have been picked up, sent to a security agencies, beaten, brutalized, and released without any charges. So these glimpses, and so I wouldn't say it's perfect. We have the laws in place, beautiful, but as to the real implementation, implementation of it, of the law. Um, we yes, we have one journalist who. Is very vocal over the years, and now he's on hibernation. Is that Anas? He doesn't. Well, Anas is one, but uh, we have uh, uh, this guy. Oh, what's his name? Uh, oh, they are, probably when the name comes, uh, I'll, I'll let you know. Now, nobody knows where he is. He used to work with uh, a, a, a station called Joy, and he had to resign. Hmm. And now nobody knows where he is, but he's constantly writing, but he has to be hiding. Hmm. That's, that says a lot yes. about press freedom. Uh, uh, yes. Ghana definitely, from your analysis, is not getting things right in that angle. Implementation of the laws, very important in Nigeria as well. We, we are dealing with press freedom because in the last 12 months to 24 months, we have had journalists jailed uncharged uh, they are kept in police custody for publishing news perhaps there is the other component on, on the flip side of perhaps publishing fake news or they were supposed to be charged with some some felony or whatever they have done but we don't see that we see that here the the, the government tries to stifle information if anyone is, is is speaking too loudly they get arrested that is not not a good sight but generally in africa you have touched on press freedom what about personal freedom in ghana uh, are people free in the simplest sense of the word um i think yeah i mean in terms of that i would say ghanaians are free um People are able to air their views on radios. They can call and say what they want. Social media is a platform. People can type in whatever they want to type and do whatever they want to do. So, yeah, on that perspective, I would say we, we are free. And you can move from any part of the country to the other without any challenges. Um, until recently, when the registration for election uh, where security personnel were deployed to certain part of the country. But these are issues that emanate just because of uh, political tensions and all that. But apart from that, I think um, we are a free state. I can move from where I am to any part of the country without um, any 
reservation or fear or whatever. Interesting. So um, we talked about press freedom and, uh, you know, personal freedom. Can we mention other things? You know, from what I see, the one of the reasons that could hinder people's freedom, you mentioned that people are free. Personal freedom, we can say, can be rated highly in Ghana. But press freedom, where we seem to have a problem, where can we say the the excessive power comes from is it just from the from the government or are there other powers that be that are not the government but you know that disturb other people that that take away other people's freedom i mean if there are other things from which oppression comes usually the popular story is when government stops press from being free when government takes away people's freedom but are there other factors that could stop people from being free maybe through religion or maybe insecurity in some way but you of course you have mentioned that for to a large extent ghana is secure uh, what would you say are other factors that could affect people's freedom i think generally i mean it's not uh, peculiar to ghana but i think to most other african country um obviously religion plays a role uh, because there are certain things that are acceptable and not acceptable within religious context. Um, but this is subtle because in Ghana, what is paramount is the 1992 constitution. So once whatever you do is in accordance with the constitution, then the religious aspect will not uh, hold because constitutionally you'll be bound. Uh, again, cultural would also contribute to that because um, uh, cultural practices vary from one uh, groupings to the other. And so it might play a subtle role in terms of uh, liberty because um, it could, I mean, just by even marriage from one tribe to the other, you could have maybe one tribe saying, I won't allow this person from this tribe to marry. It's somehow, I think, infringement of individual liberty. So you have these undertones happening, but uh, you don't see them on the limelight. Um, the ones you see is um, the initial one I told you, the journalist Manasseh Azuri, who was known to be a prolific writer, and then now he, he's trying to uh, hide. sometimes go to South Africa or just in Ghana, but hide. And then uh, recently, one of the guys that work with Anas, uh, Swali, Ahmed Swale, he was just going home and someone on a, some guys on a motorbike shot him dead until now we don't know who contracted them to kill him. So yeah, those are the ones we see on the limelight. But the religious, the cultural, and those ones that are undertone are not really uh, being highlighted. So on a general note, what has to be done to deal with these issues? I mean, it, it looks, it sounds like a scary tale when we talk about people being killed for being journalists. Of course, it's not just a Ghana story. It's a global situation in Brazil, in Mexico. Uh, press freedom is a big deal in the Middle East, in some parts of Eurasia. We have these stories. Beyond press freedom, personal freedom, the little things that have to be, you know, that that should be ensured because a free society is like the, the best society, if, if, if I do say so. So what has to be done? Um, I think, so. I mean, since we say 
liberty is synonymous to education, information, and is contrary to slavery. And so um, it's important we educate people on their privileges, rights, as well as responsibility, because it goes rights and privileges goes hand in hand with responsibility. Um, and we should have a lot of advocacy um, and we should allow people to tell their stories. I think when we get to know of people's stories, then we will be able to speak up collectively and uh, ensure the rights change are made. Laws are made for us, not we being made for laws. And so we should be able to adapt to pressing needs and situations. So let's get to some of your personal work. The Herpol Africa Agency, so to yes. speak, is yeah. your creation. You do a lot of policy research work. Can you help us understand um, what policy formulation entails and why is the education of this important to the Freedom Project? Uh, for me, as in, uh, with this organization, Help All Africa, I believe policy, the bedrock of policy is research. And so you should be able to do research and research can come in different format. Looking at, so I mean, a typical example is that before you can put up a policy on the uh, like recent ban on importation of salvage cars in Ghana, for instance, which when there was a political brouhaha, the policy was suspended and I was questioning, if you think it was a good and sustainable policy, why would you suspend it because of political noise? And that's the challenge. It means we did not research. Most of the policies we have in Africa, it's a policy that people just woke up from dreams or because of particular percentage they are going to get yeah. from its implementation. And then the costs of addressing the challenges associated with the rush implementation of the policy makes it expensive than if we had invested time to research and make sure we do the right thing. And so that's one thing that is paramount to me. Although I know the issue of lack of inclusivity in our educational system, not only in Ghana, but in other African countries. I cannot just get up and start advocating for it. So what, as an organization, we are doing is collecting data on how many people have those conditions, being able to speak to them, yeah. get the data. Then we can use the data and see the solutions we can provide and what are the framework. So we don't just get up and say, oh, let's start talking about inclusivity when we don't know what their core problem is. What do they want and what is the solution? Can we actually implement it? How long? So policy formulation is not time bound because you need to collect data. Yeah. So I think that's what Africans have to understand, that policy formulation involves research. And so we don't have to take things on a wholesale level, but we need to research and research well. I can definitely relate to this and I agree because if we rush into 
creation of whatever policy it just might not be sustainable because we have refused to research the pros and cons the environment in which the said policy would work in and we just may not have factored in all the necessities before going ahead a case in point if i can share this is the nsas situation in nigeria which has been a persistent situation over the years where Nigerians have called for the end of this notorious police unit who just pull up on anybody on the road and extort them and, in fact, brutalize people. But Nigerians say they don't want to hear anything. Um, Only a few hours ago, the announcement was made that SARS Special Anti-Robbery Squad has been disbanded. The Inspector General of Police announced that. But then one of the points he made was that some of these guys will not be sacked most definitely they will be put back into other police formations already nigerians are expressing distrust at that they are saying this is not what we want but then again nigerians cannot say that we should sack all of them not all of them have been involved in in the so so it goes back to research if we had done some research some think tank to put some time into this and put maybe a 10-point agenda we want this and this to happen we want you to redeploy them in this way we want these specific reforms in the police it would have been better to say that but of course already we know that disbanding sas like we were calling for it we called for this we have it now but this is not the end so it goes back to your point yes it's sad to hear about the sas situation i've been seeing on posts for the couple of days and i'm happy to hear that i think they have they have been dissolved and hopefully um, it's sustainable we will still uh, correct uh, whatever it is so that they don't come in a different attire in a different uh, guys to get back at us let's talk more about herpol africa health education research policy how do you merge this for uh you you come from a health background speaking academically and then of course you have talked a lot about education how does these three or four concepts work together for you to be free you need to be educated and if you are free and you are not healthy you are not in existence and the things that merge these two is to make sure that you have an informed policy that would ensure you have the best information in terms of education, and then you have the quality of health that will sustain you. So that's why we are looking at them in tandem. Interesting. Let's look at the relationship between government policy and national developments. How do citizens come into the picture and ensure that the right set of policies are put in place to ensure that the wrong ones are removed or amended. You always refer to the 1992 constitution in Ghana. In Nigeria, what we have is the 1999 constitution as amended, constantly amended with time. And, you know, sometimes we have policies, somersaults, things that we thought was the way, and then we come back to it and you hold on a second, this is not what we should have done. How does government policy relate to national development? I mean, the sad thing to say is that I might not be right, but most African countries do not seem to have a national agenda. And so we don't have a streamline of national policy development. We rather have political policies, or for better words, we say government policy, because of a particular party that has formed the government. And it does not necessarily translate into the needs of the citizens and the country at large. And that's where you ask the question, what should citizens be looking out for? Yeah. 
in leaders and therefore citizens should be able to scrutinize political parties based on the policies they are presenting to address the needs of the country and so they will vote people based on policies that would be beneficial to the national development because they we've seen a lot of policies that have been implemented by government that is of no benefit to the citizenry and i'm sure we have a number of them or the policies were not even implemented at the right time because you can have a good policy but not um, implemented at the right environment or at the right time and that all goes back to the fact that due diligence were not made in the formulation or the research of the policy so citizens should be advocate uh, i mean typical in Ghana we say citizens should not be spectators but i would say citizens should not be slaves they should be supporters and i typically look at uh, someone who loves football if you look at supporters they are there to heal the team when the team is doing the right thing and they are there to criticize their team when the team is not doing well and the beauty of sports or football was demonstrated at uh, santiago banabao when ronaldinho came and displayed fans of real madrid get up and gave him a standing ovation mm. and juventus showed that when ronaldo did that and if citizens are like that the fact that you are in a political party does not mean you should support whatever they do even mm. if it is dark has to be interrogated that is slaves so we have more political slaves in africa than political supporters mm. and they are ready to put their head on the chopboard to defend their party even for things they don't even understand personally mm. just supporting for supporting sake they call it yes. Omowania Joshi politics in Nigeria. That's a Yoruba language that simply translates to it's our son, let him do it. We don't care what he does, but because it's our son, it's our person, go ahead and support him. It's like nepotism, if you like. A great takeaway from yes. this conversation would be that education is very important. If everybody knew what would work or what should be, they are right, then we can better interrogate leaders. We can better make informed decisions when it comes to political advancement and all of that. Let's wrap up the conversation with your take on the state of freedom and governance in Africa. Uh, unfortunately, in Mali, we are back to a military junta for some reason. What is your general perception of leadership, governance, freedom in Africa? Hopefully, I think um, there's some glimpses of hopes in some African continent. I mean, some people are looking at Rwanda coming from the genocide in the 90s and then getting to where they are today as a beacon of hope that Africa has not lost it. When we get our act right, we'll be able to be counted again. Mm. Um, I think Tanzania is also showing glimpses of the ability to be able to believe in each other, work together, and get things right. So those are glimpses of hopes. On the other side, it is again showing us that people, as they are getting more informed and educated, will be able to ask questions. And so, if our leaders probably think they can take us for granted. and probably people would think they are so powerful that they cannot be touched the masses are the ones that cannot be touched so i always say i mean in akan language they say when the beer of your neighbor is burning you don't laugh at him you fetch water and put yours in 
So interesting is is that when you see someone in a challenge, you don't just ignore the challenge. Look within yourself to be sure that you are not also doing the mistake that person is doing. Hmm. And then if you look at the situation of Mali, it is political insecurity. The country security situation is porous. This Boko Haram insurgents and some of these military staff, uh, Al Shaddad and all that, were yeah. all things that made people not happy. The economic situation was not good. Too bad. And that resulted in that revolt. Mm. And so it's a warning to other African leaders and other African countries that when you don't do the right thing, we might have these situations that happened in the 60s, 70s, and 80s across the continent. Yes, I mean, now I think I'll advise that we should rather use our voices rather than weapons. And so I would say that we should learn to speak up. Silence can be the greatest injustice that probably do if we can't speak up for a good cause. When we see things bad, we should be able to speak up because silence will not help in those situations. And then we should always learn to stand for truth, not strength. The fact that people are saying things, you do not just have to follow them. You should be able to stand for truth, not trends. And again, as a continent, we should be able to stand for liberty, not lies. Hmm. Because a lot of lies, like you said, false information, false news and all that. But we should be able to stand for our independence, our freedom, not lies. And we should stand for truth and not strength. And our leaders should not take us for granted. Dr. Osman Dufeilu, uh, a Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation scholar, a scholar of repute with years of teaching and leadership experience, joined us from Ghana for this conversation on the Freedom in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. That's our conversation on the podcast. Ensure you subscribe to the podcast and we'll see you next time for a new conversation. My name is Gwe Gadiria. Stay safe. Put your hand